everybody, and welcome back to Feeling Seen, the podcast that talks about the movies that make us feel seen. Um, I don't think you're going to believe when you hear who my co-host is for today. It is someone, uh, my co-host has been with so many of us for much of our lives, most of our lives, our entire lives. Um, It's ridiculous to say you might know him from, because you might know him from literally anything, anywhere, everywhere. Uh, Let's say the Goldbergs, let's say Grace and Frankie, let's say voicing on Archer, let's say Groundhog Day, let's say the Mindy Project, let's say one of my favorites growing up, Sneakers, honestly, is one of my favorite appearances from him. Steven Tobolowski, what do the people need to know about you before we get started, other than the fact that you are starring in a movie coming out called Love Virtually? How else can we kick this off with the best introduction for you, with an, an expansive resume around which my mind could never fully wrap itself? Uh, I guess I'm somebody who always wanted to be an actor mm-hmm. from the time I was little. Uh, everybody in my neighborhood wanted to play cowboys and Indians. which I didn't understand. I said, why don't we play making movies? Yeah. And and they said, how do we play making movies? I said, well, and this is back when I'm like five. I'm Mm -hmm. saying, well, what we do is you could play cowboys and Indians as if it were a movie. As if it were a movie. Yeah, yeah. So I think Steven Spielberg would 100% agree with you in that interpretation of what to do as a child. We've all, we've, we've all seen the film by now. Yeah. We've all seen the Fablemans. Well, how, how are you? How are you today being, I feel like, one of the most prolific actors? Like, do you ever rest? Is there a day off for Stephen Tobolowsky? Well, I'll, certainly during the pandemic and certainly during sure. the uh, actor strike, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. But I did a couple projects during the actor strike that got cleared mm-hmm. to be done. But yes, then there were you, SAG waivers that were issued for certain projects. But then I couldn't tell anybody I was doing anything because then they think I was scabbing. So, uh-huh, you know, exactly. secretive. But I, I did some little projects d- during during that. But I think if people knew, like you see behind me these books. Mm-hmm. Okay. These books. Like I started reading the Talmud mm-hmm. when I had a broken neck. Oh. I had a broken neck. And I thought, oh, this is something that I always thought I would want to read in my life. Mm-hmm. And so I started getting the first book and I opened it up and it was talking about the blessing of the mishap, mm. you know, catastrophe of, of that sometimes catastrophe is uh, it, instructive sometimes it's life-saving it's the catastrophe that really saves you and i thought it was just freaky that i was reading this at the first 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 time and i thought that's kind of been what my life has been has been marked by catastrophes and by miracles that followed the catastrophes mm-hmm. so i've i've had so many catastrophes and they've <laughs> led to so many good things that now i would just say my gift to the listening audience is hmm. never let a catastrophe go by without waiting and seeing <laughs> what miracle is right around the corner. Because for me, there's always been one. Always how been much one. Of, 
How much of your life did it take until you were able to have the perspective on that relationship between catastrophe and opportunity? Were you like, because like at 15, it's hard to be like, I'm sure there's a miracle around the corner or 25. But like, was that something you were able to glean early on or was that like wisdom that came with time? I think it was probably the broken neck. How? What happened? I went horseback riding on the side of an active volcano in Iceland. Oh, my God. Like, what could possibly go wrong with this? (laughs) Yeah. I don't... It's completely safe. There's no no possible for harboring. No, no, no. Nothing could possibly go wrong. So, (laughs) you know, we... My horse... We had switched horses on these rides, and Mm -hmm. I went from this one horse that was fine being with the pack to a horse that wanted to be up front. Mm -hmm. This Mm -hmm. little son of a bitch's name was Little Red. Little Red. (laughs) Don't trust Little Red. So he had to ride at the front of the line, and we were... Iceland is subject to gigantic wind and waves that come off the Atlantic. So you have these freak waves that like kill tourists who go down onto the black beach, you know, these hundred foot waves that come in. Suddenly, No one tells, there was like a tourist move. Everybody, you know, went to Iceland a couple years ago. Nobody brought this up. There's a little sign. They have a little (laughs) sign that says, warning, large waves can be encountered at the black beach. You know, my my son was down there, you know, looking for all this, you know, Black Beach, you know, Black Mm Beach. So, and uh, so we were riding on this volcano. What could possibly Mm -hmm. go wrong there? Not only that, we were on top of Mount Hetla. And if Uh you read the newspapers, Mount Hetla is the thing that blew up about three, four years ago. Like totally, like totally blew up. Like, so these are active volcanoes extremely yeah highly active island geologically so my horse was at the front of the line of horses my wife was with this group uh mm-hmm. all these people were with this group and suddenly this wind mm-hmm. lifts my horse like a tornado what? lifts us off the ground you and, and the horse were off the ground. off the ground so we were i'm on the horse's back and we are flying through the air we are flying through the air, and then the next thing I remember is I'm sideways, and I just see things coming at me, like and brushes hitting me, and oh da 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 da. And then I don't remember anything for a while. And what was told me was the horse threw me onto a hardened lava flow, oh. and the head of the riding thing rushed up to me, and I was in a fetal position on the only piece of vegetation. On this lava flow. Oh, there's miracle number one. I was going to say, this is a miracle within the catastrophe. Within the miracle. So there is this... It's starting to hit me. So I'm in this fetal position on Uh on this, and I just remember the head of the riding team coming over with another horse. He came galloping, and I jumped up, off the lava flow, jumped onto the other horse and said, I I feel sick. He said, get off of the horse. Oh, my God. So I got off of the horse. They had to call for some kind of all-terrain vehicle because there are no roads that go up Mount Hetla. So Uh this truck apparently had to come up the mountain, pick me up, all this I don't remember, uh, sure, yeah. Then they took me down to a doctor 
in the nearby town of Hetla, took uh-huh. me to a doctor there, a woman doctor who checked me out and said that she thought I should go to a hospital in Reykjavik. Mm-hmm. And, and they put me in some sort of brace. Uh-huh. And uh, they call for an ambulance. And so I'm unconscious during all of this. And yeah. then the first thing I realize is I hear this noise and it's a siren. And uh-huh. I thought, oh, I'm in an ambulance. Oh, my God. And I tried to look. My wife is in the back of the ambulance with me. And I this said, is like you're observing your life from like outside of it, but like not really in it. And, and, and I go, where am I? And, and she says, you're in Iceland. You've been hurt. We're in the back of an ambulance. We're on our way to Reykjavik to a hospital uh-huh. you know, where you're thrown from a horse. And apparently I had been saying, where am I? Uh-huh. For the last few hours was the only Whoa. sentence that could come out of my mouth. Where am I? And Anne. Oh my God, your poor wife must have been so terrified. I, I, sending love to your wife uh, and her getting through this. She thinks I'm done. She thinks yeah. I'm done. And, and so for two hours uh, now, the whole time going down, apparently this was my mantra. Where am I? And she would, mm-hmm. and I go, Where am I? Where am I? Where am I? This the is only thing harrowing. I could, that's the only thing I could say. So they take me to Iceland, uh, Reykjavik, and there they have a doctor who says I have a fracture in my neck. And so they're putting me in this very hard brace. Mm -hmm. And they said, and Annie apparently said, well, is he okay? Oh, yes, he could walk around. He could, you know. Wow. he'll, He'll be able to spend the rest of the time here in Iceland. We're going to just go watch a horse show. And we had another (laughs) week there or something. So I don't remember any of that. Then Uh we're, we're back in the ambulance. I don't remember. And all of a sudden the back of the ambulance, everything goes black. And like this, I'm in Los Angeles. I'm in Los Angeles at someone who I knew's home, sitting on their back porch. And I remember the table. I was sitting at the table, and I saw the flecks of paint on the table. And I had no idea how I got there or where I was or what was happening. And uh, I hear Gloria Estevan playing on the uh radio inside the house and this woman comes out and goes Stephen what are you doing here and I said I don't know I don't know I think I was somewhere else and something had happened to me that was horrible but I'm so glad that I'm here thank God that I'm here and not where I thought you will not believe it if I were to tell you what I thought I was and what was happening to me. And and she said, okay, okay, okay. Is, is there anything you need? I said, do you have some water? I'm so thirsty. Could I have some water? She goes into the kitchen. She brings out a glass of water with ice in it. And I could see the uh, condensation on the outside of the glass. 
and I drink it and I almost start to cry because the water is so good. And, and she, she said, are you all right? I said, I don't think so. I don't know, uh-huh. but just this water uh-huh. is so good. I was so thirsty. I was so thirsty. And she said, well, do you need anything to eat? I go, yes, please. If I could have something to eat, I'm, I'm hungry. Yeah. She says, well, I, I have some chips and dip. You know, we're having a party later. I said, please, please. <laughs> so she goes in, have chips and dip, and I'm looking up with the water, and I see birds on the telegraph pole, and they fly away, and then everything goes black. Oh, my God. And I'm in the back of the ambulance with Ann. And my vision clears, and I go, where am I? And she says, you're in Iceland. You've been thrown from a horse. You've been hurt badly. We're taking you, you know, where where you'll be. I said, I don't mean that. Uh I mean, I was somewhere else, Annie. And Anne starts crying because it's the first new words I had said oh, in hours. Uh huh. I was somewhere else. I was in California. I was at uh-huh. a party. I drank water, uh-huh. and she's just bawling, and she's, and she's saying like, "No, you're here. We're both here." And then I end up in Iceland for those next seven days. Uh-huh. We go to the airport, fly from Iceland to New York where we have to change planes. Uh-huh. And this guy with a long white beard saying, Oh, he recognized me because uh you you're wearing this neck brace. You think this is you found a way to get around security, huh? <laughs> he knew me from Deadwood. He was a big fan of Deadwood. He says, Wow. I got I got uh, Commissioner Jari here, and you're trying to sneak on. I see. I said, no, no, no. I fractured my neck in Iceland, yeah. and, and the doctor gave this, and he says, why well, happen to be the head of of neurosurgery at Mount what? Sinai Hospital in New York, and you're in the wrong brace? And I go, Whoa. what? He says, what? You, you could die in that brace on the plane. This brace is not enough for an airplane. Uh, you have to take this brace off and you have to put your hands around your neck like this and hold your head the, the entire time. time you fly from here to Los Angeles. And when you get to Los Angeles, call a head and neck specialist mm-hmm. and go in and see him and get the right brace. So you had to hold your neck the entire, the entire time six from, hours? New York, from New York to Los Angeles. I held oh, my head. My I God. went into my head and neck specialist. Now, uh-huh. How many people have one of those? But I had, <laughs> I had one, and uh, I go into the head and neck specialist, and he gets me a right brace, and he says, "You were misdiagnosed in Iceland. You don't oh have God. a fractured neck. Your entire neck is broken. You have oh. five major breaks, and the middle one, the C five, is a burst fracture." These are fatal injuries. That The word burst fracture is one of the worst things I've ever heard. Yeah, it's terrible. And, <laughs> yeah. and, it, it, and, and we're going like, fatal, fatal injury. He says, do you want to know why you're alive? And I'm in this new brace. I'm going, uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. He says, because most people have a cervical spine 
with this curve in it, like so. Sure. But yours, because you had arthritis of the neck, is the opposite of a normal human being. So instead of snapping your neck in two like Christopher Reeve, Uh you had the same injury. You fractured all of these vertebrae here. Because you had arthritis. Because I had arthritis. My catastrophe, arthritis, Uh Uh had saved my life. (laughs) So now I felt like to recover, I'm going to read this book that I never thought I should read. So I read one of these books that's behind me, the Uh Talmud, saying that sometimes the blessings of catastrophe, and Uh and I'm going like, oh my God, I just experienced this lesson. So I I felt like uh, I had multiple miracles happen at any one time. So uh, if, if I could say when uh here's a jump when <laughs> i had worked with the director ellie stamen on mm-hmm. love virtually i'd worked mm-hmm. with him before and oh, so okay. i knew he was a really good director i trusted him with yeah. when, when when he said you know you you do do you want to do this i i said yeah yeah sure absolutely uh-huh i it was at the beginning of the pandemic and I thought the pandemic is the curse, uh-huh. is, is that maybe there's a miracle on the other side of the curse. Mm-hmm. And so you don't get anywhere by doing nothing. So say yeah. yes to this project. Yeah. And we're always taking our life in our hands. So <laughs> my life has been one of a series of unexplained catastrophes <laughs> that have always led always led to something good on the other side. Now, I'm sure somewhere down the line, there's going to be mm-hmm. one of those that isn't going to lead to something good. But sure. so far, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of catastrophe. <laughs> no, this works. This is this somehow we've arrived at a perfect transition point to talking about the actual characters, because the two characters that you have brought, you've brought the monster from Bride of Frankenstein and you've brought George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life. And these are two characters defined by catastrophe, sort of the monster whose life is a catastrophe sort of inherently. And then George Bailey, who has to be walked through the catastrophe that he's experiencing to take his whole life in stock to understand why it's worth continuing on what the miracle is on the other side of the catastrophe. So these characters make complete sense based on everything you have just told me. See, I I did not make that connection until you said that. I got to tell you, I didn't. (laughs) That's how true what you're saying is about the miracle and the catastrophe. And it's how true your connection is to these characters is that like, yes, like, like, and I think it's an interesting, like you said when, when you were, when we asked you about this, that. You, your first sort of point of identification was the monster. And then that kind of evolved into like Jimmy Stewart's character later, Jimmy Stewart's character in It's a Wonderful Life, which I feel is like a progression in one's life to that perspective of understanding that there is miracle on the other side of catastrophe. Because whereas the monster is a hopeless story and he he concludes in The Bride of Frankenstein by saying, we belong dead. But I can't leave them, I can't. Yes, go, you live. Go. You stay. We belong dead. 
And then you have George Bailey, who's ready to take his own life at the beginning of It's a Wonderful Life. And then by the end is realizing that he's the richest man in town because he's rich in love and friendship and and connection. So it feels like the points of connection between Frankenstein's monster and George are that same evolution that you have had of finding the hope on the other side of of absolute hopelessness. Yes, absolutely. Wow. That, now, you did that, and I, I, because when you offered me that problem, like what movies, mm-hmm. what movies, I just went from a gut thing. Yeah. That to me, when I was a kid, Bride of Frankenstein was the movie that put me in awe, that made uh, me cry, that was like, yeah the greatest thing I'd ever seen. And I still look back at it Mm -hmm. and it's a magnificent movie. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then it's a wonderful life has kind of been my talisman Mm -hmm. ever since then, you know, as a grown up. I had to work quickly. That's why I jumped in. I knew if I were drowning, you tried to save me. You see, you did. And that's how I saved you. Uh, uh, Very funny. Your lips bleeding, George. Yeah. I got a bust in the jaw in answer to a prayer a little bit ago. Oh, no, 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 George. I'm the answer to your prayer. That's why I was sent down here. There was an interesting thing you said, like, when you were sort of like, we, we got like a little a little couple sentences from you about like your answer to the question and what we could talk about today. And it, when you mentioned the monster, you mentioned this person who was sort of like, you know, uh, again, a sort of lightning rod for catastrophe himself and like someone who was... Uh, frightening and someone who was off-putting to people and and you mentioned like you know I I had superpowers that I wasn't yet aware of and I didn't like you you know we don't know how to harness these as young people and then at the end of talking about George Bailey you said that like will he become the hero of his own story was like the way you you close that statement and I wanted to get into both of those things with you of like an early connection with a character that is such a popular conduit. Like I, I talk a lot about queer horror and the intersection of queer history and genre cinema. And the monster is such a frequent point of identification among like queer folks I've talked to about genre because they feel like they are the ostracized monster. Like they weren't, they didn't pick to be made this way, but they're being sort of cast out for the fact of, of who and what they are. And I, I wanted to talk about an early connection to something such like a profoundly tragic character as the monster. Well, I never thought of that. Certainly uh, people I grew up with if if you were gay mm-hmm. in Oak Cliff, Texas, oh boy, you were as good as dead. And and several of my friends <clears throat> who I didn't know were gay, but were good friends of mine, mm-hmm. ended up not making it out of their teens. God, killed, mm-hmm. uh, either murdered or suicide. Unbelievable. And unbelievable. But it was. That was Texas. That was Oak Cliff. Uh, so you 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 grew up in a place where difference was not necessarily welcome, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, yeah. we were we were Jewish, and mm. that, and it sounds like an exaggeration, but it's not. There were more Nazis, and I don't mean mm. saying that like as the as a colloquialism. As a colloquialism, like these are people that are just nasty. No, yeah. I mean people who are in the Nazi party. There were yeah. more Nazis in our community than there were Jews. There were three Jewish families in Oak Cliff, uh-huh. three. And we were one of the three. And uh-huh. uh, we played basketball, you know, 
elementary school basketball, and John Rutledge mm-hmm. was our guard. And, you know, he invited us over for pimento cheese and, <laughs> you know, Kool-Aid. Yeah. And we walked over from the elementary school over to his house and went into his living room, and there was a bust of Hitler, mm-hmm. Hitler, on oh, the fireplace and on the mantle, like the table in front of the fireplace, was Stormtrooper magazine. Oh, my God. So I'm going like, okay, okay. <laughs> I, I know what discussion I cannot have in this house. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, but I'm saying that was more popular than, yeah. than like somebody who was being Jewish. And if you were gay, oh, forget that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and you and you you said too that you were you you know you had powers you weren't aware of and that you were always seemed to be getting into trouble. And so, what kind of trouble was it that you were getting into? I uh, I was always adventurous, mm-hmm. and so as a little boy, I I I formed with a friend of mine, Billy Hart, the Dangerous Animals Club. <laughs> Find and, plenty of those. In Texas. Yeah, and so we went out into the woods all the time to catch poisonous snakes. I was always hyperactive, mm-hmm. always made to stand in the corner. Teachers made me stand in the corner, mm-hmm. made me stand in the hallway because I was misbehaving. And I think because I was tall, I was always tall. Mm-hmm. And I think teachers always saw me as someone to make an example of. Sure. So. That's what my life was in elementary school, always getting into trouble, either mm-hmm. for running up the stairs too fast or laughing too loud in classroom, always made to stand outside. And they just figured that uh, I was just one of those big loser kids that, sure. that, that grow up in Texas. So, you know, I, <laughs> you know, I, uh, and uh, then I went to junior high and I got sick. Mm-hmm. catastrophe mm-hmm. catastrophe I got very sick and my mom was crying every night mm-hmm. thought that I was going to die I was bleeding internally and, oh god and I was sick for like three years that is so long so long uh, you know so we were going to cancer specialist they thought like I had some sort of childhood cancer some uh-huh. I couldn't eat uh, so we ended up finding a couple things I could eat. I became anemic cause I was bleeding so much. I couldn't uh-huh. play. So seventh, eighth, ninth grade, I wasn't really allowed to play. So all I was allowed to do was go to study hall. Oh, so wow. instead of gym, I went to study hall, but I already mm-hmm. was in two study halls. So I spent half of my day in junior high school in study halls. Wow. With no teacher, no, no, you know, just in study hall. So I thought, I'm going to read a play because they had all <laughs> these plays there. So mm-hmm. the first play I pulled out because the volume there was King Lear. Uh-huh. King Lear. This is going to be the first play I'm going to read. It's King Lear. <laughs> Strong start. <laughs> Strong start. So I have no <laughs> idea what I'm looking at, but I know uh-huh. my mother always liked the land. The, the line, how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. Mm. So I knew that was in King Lear somewhere. Mm-hmm. So I'm reading through it, and then I come across a line, and I think it's Albany who says it. I, 
who is it that can say this is the worst? And I look at that line and I go like, oh, I know what that means. Because now I'm thinking like I'm in the worst, but who is it that could say this is the worst? Maybe this is not the worst. Maybe this is this is just a resting period for me. Maybe there's there's something on the other side of this for me. So I kept reading plays in the study hall. I wasn't allowed to play. I wasn't allowed to go to gym. I wasn't allowed to do that, but I could read. And so when I left junior high, went to high school, I signed up for drama and debate because I'd been reading plays. And so I thought, oh, maybe I could do this. So I was in the school play. And I was successful in the school play. And uh, so I thought, well, I'll keep doing the school plays because I could do that. And then I started doing debate. I could do that. I could read and argue and, and do that kind of thing. And I became very successful in high school doing uh, school plays and debate. My partner, Darren McWhorter, and I, we were the terrors of North Texas. Uh, we won many debate tournaments together, and my love to Darren, if you ever hear this. And then I won Best Actor in the State of Texas for playing the dual role of Talthibius, the Greek soldier with a heart, and Poseidon, Lord of the Deep, in the one-act version of The Trojan Women. So this catastrophe of my not being able to be in gym class led me to acting, something I felt I could do well. And now I had awards to prove I could do it well. And so I went off to SMU, majored in acting there. And as people who know my life know, there I had a catastrophe in that I had a teacher, I guess starting my sophomore year, who hated me and was determined to drum me out of the department, I knew I was screwed. So I went out and I got my equity card in Dallas and started performing professionally, which she really hated. Again, I'd learned from catastrophe and I'd learned about bullies. And I went to the one teacher who I knew liked me, Tony Graham White, because he taught theater history. And I loved theater history because I was used to reading plays from my catastrophe in junior high school. I said, is there any rule in the handbook that says I cannot take the graduate exam early? And he says, there's nothing in the handbook. I said, I want you to give me the graduate exam this week. And only you can grade it. And if you could keep it for me in case I need it. So that weekend, I took the graduate exam a year and a half early. Sure enough, at the end of my senior year, six weeks before graduation, the head of the department came up to me and said, Stephen, I have terrible news, terrible news. Joan Potter has given you a second unsatisfactory critique, which means you are officially out of the department, and so you won't be able to take the graduate exam. I said, Hob, I've already taken the graduate exam. But all of that stuff I learned from dealing with bullies and catastrophe. I mean, this is your this is your George Bailey life. Like this is being the man standing in between 
like the town in Pottersville. Like this is you being the person who like your brother falls into the icy lake, you get him out. But where are the houses? You went here to build them. Your brother Harry Bailey broke through the ice and was drowned at the age of nine. That's a lie. Harry Bailey went to war. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He saved the lives of every man on that transport. Every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry. There is somebody's about to take over the your family's savings alone. So even though you want to go travel the world, you're going to come back and you're going to carry the business on your shoulders. Like this is I the connections between you and these characters you've chosen feel so intimate through these stories. I you know I I got to be honest with you. I never thought of any of this when I picked those two movies. <laughs> You know, Your soul there was nothing cognitive. Your soul knew there it. was nothing cognitive about it. It was just, oh, well, these two movies meant a lot to me. Always. Yeah. We simply must take a break, but I promise I'll be right back with more wisdom, stories, and feeling scene talk from Stephen Tobolowski. And then I'll have one quick thing before I go about the ladies of Scream. Who would I be if I did not address the recent unfolding drama around that franchise. So stick around. Folks, we get it. Keeping up with an actual play podcast in this economy is a tough sell. That's why we have great news for you. The Adventure Zone is changing up its format. We're going to be doing some shorter seasons, more experimental stuff. There's never been a better time to get on board the zone. And if you're sick of listening to our voices, we get that too. So we're including some guests uh, on this upcoming one. We've got Kate Welch and Gabe Hicks, who are incredible. And you want us to try out some new games? You got it. We've got the new Marvel Multiverse RPG. We're using that and with a really brilliant GM doing it. It's dad. I mean, what he's saying is it's dad. Dad so is doing it. It's yeah. dad doing it. You can listen every Thursday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm glad you said that because nobody says that. Can I just say thank you to you for such a thoughtful interview? Oh, my God. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Bullseye. Interviews with creators you love and creators you need to know. Listen to the Bullseye podcast only from NPR and Maximum Fun. Welcome back to Feeling Seen. My co-host today is renowned character actor Stephen Tobolowsky, who has been giving us an incredible lesson in the way catastrophe can actually be a blessing in disguise. It's a lesson George Bailey learns in It's a Wonderful Life, which is one of two characters Stephen brought to us today. The other is the monster in The Bride of Frankenstein. There is so much more to get into, so let's dive in right now. When you think of The Bride of Frankenstein, you, you know, it has mm -hmm. the great, great scene in it, which, of course, Mel Brooks made fun of, which was mm -hmm. the monster meeting the blind beggar by the lake. Yes, and because the hermit. the hermit is blind, he's not, he doesn't think that it's a monster. Mm -hmm. and, and so they're able to be together and come, my friend. Who is it? You're welcome, my friend, whoever you are. Uh, 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 uh. Who are you? I think you're a stranger to me. 
I cannot see you. I cannot see anything. You must please excuse me. But I'm blind. Come in, my poor friend. No one will hurt you here. If you're in trouble, perhaps I can help you. But you need not tell me about it if you don't want to. What's the matter? You're hurt, my poor friend. Come. And that's, you know, with the Frankenstein monster shedding a tear, that someone has <laughs> actually been friendly to him, even though he accidentally burns the house down or whatever. But that scene always meant so mm-hmm. much to me uh, mm-hmm. w- w- with the monster. And uh, I did have a positive slant on we, we are better off dead or we belong dead yeah. at the end. And that is also a positive statement of knowing hmm. of knowing what you were not meant to be. You know, yeah. I had lived this life. I had lived my whole life. I ended up dead. You came back. Mm-hmm. You turned me into something else. And you mm-hmm. turned her into something else. And she just mm-hmm. sees me as a monster. And... She hates me like others. You know, I'm okay with that. It's I'm okay passing away. I'm okay. You know, fate hands that to you. Uh, you know, when I went in for my heart surgery, mm. I had to have open heart surgery. And, uh, you know, when you go in, they say, don't bring anything with you. Mm-hmm. Nothing. No mm-hmm. glasses, no wedding ring, no wallet, no ID. Mm-hmm. You, have to, <laughs> you have to bring in another person. Yeah. That has all your stuff. That mm-hmm. that so they're the ones who have to fill out the papers. You do nothing. And so when you have serious surgery like that, uh mm-hmm. you you show up at the hospital at dawn and you're in the waiting room and there's mm-hmm. probably twelve people that are about to undergo surgery. Right. And you look at this waiting room and there's twelve people that are silent, sitting there, maybe cross-legged, breathing, nothing. And then there's a person next to them losing their minds, (laughs) just in tears. That's a wreck. So, you know, the person that comes with you that has to bring your stuff is a wreck. But the person who's getting surgery is okay. Mm -hmm. And I remember Annie walked with me. You walk into the double doors together. We all go in together. We all go into the rooms together. All the people go in at dawn together. Mm -hmm. You're not called separately. Wow, what a march. That's what a visual that is. (laughs) And and I I remember uh, such an idiot. I I kiss Annie (laughs) on the cheek and I said, well, see you on the other side. (laughs) 
<laughs> I didn't mean the other side. I meant yeah. In she's the like, way, which other side? Which room. dimension, Steven? Which dimension? I in the uh, in the recovery room, and she like punched <laughs> me, and she says, "Don't say that." I said, "No, no, no. I didn't mean dead. I mean in recovery. When I wake up, I'll see you on the other on the other yeah. part of the other side. When I wake up, baby, it'll be okay." Yeah. <laughs> Your wife's been through it. So I'm just saying, when you realize that death is an option, yeah, really an option, like the Frankenstein mm-hmm. monster, you go, yeah. that's okay. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I, there was an aspect of of part of your answering that question too, where I, I brought it up before, like you saying, like about George Bailey, like will he be the hero of his own story, and and you know you talking about like dealing with so much like rolling adversity in your life and having to find the blessings in 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 as we've said catastrophe and i wanted to hear about like as someone who is such a prolific presence in this industry and who is just the swiss army knife of supporting characters <laughs> like the question of with George Bailey, like, will he be the hero of his own story and him struggling with it seeming like not feeling like he is the star of his own show and the things he sort of compromised to have the life that he does. And then even in the case of The Bride of Frankenstein, Frankenstein isn't his name. He's Frankenstein's monster. Like, this is a movie about a character whose name is not the title, but who we follow, but who Dr. Frankenstein gets the titular sort of treatment of it. And I I wanted to hear from you about, have you been able to feel like the hero of your own story facing so many of these great walls to climb and a career defined by just being a definitive presence in an industry where you are coming in to support a primary antagonist. Like, how has that experience been for you? Well, you realize how difficult show business is just to do it. It requires so many people who are good at what they do just to even turn out something that's bad. (laughs) Wow, yeah. (laughs) You you know, it, it takes so much to do it. And... You, you realize there's a sort of, you run into people who want to do it because they want to be famous mm-hmm, or they mm-hmm. want to be rich, but you realize that has nothing to do with it because mm-hmm. most people don't end up rich and a lot mm-hmm. of people don't end up famous and famous mm-hmm. isn't good anyway. I mean, I can't <laughs> go, I'm famous in terms of my family. I, I can't go anywhere. I can't yeah. go anywhere, any place. I can't even in Europe. I can't go yeah. anywhere because people recognize me from everything all the time. And if uh, somebody's shouting Ned Ryerson at you every week, I'm imagining. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, in the woods of France, I ran into somebody who was going the other way down a trail. Go, oh, is Ned? Is Ned? <laughs> Now, don't you tell me you don't remember me because I sure as heck fire remember you. Not a chance. <laughs> Ned! Ryerson! Needle nose Ned, Ned the head. Come on, buddy. Case Western High. There it is. You, you know, it's like you can't go anywhere. You know, their fame is not a good thing if people want to be famous. That's not a good thing. Mm-hmm. And most people, you know, you don't make that much money doing it. But you realize if you were born to do it or if it's it's, you are have the proclivity to do it you realize it's kind of a little miracle 
that you're mm-hmm. able to pull this stuff off. And I've been in, in a lot of things that when we made them, mm-hmm. we were proud of them. We thought they were good. And when you went into Starbucks, people saw them and they went like, oh, great. I saw your show the other night. It was great. Those shows mm-hmm. are gone. Those yeah. shows are gone. No one will ever see them again. They've vanished. The shows have been canceled. They're not on videotape. They're not on DVD. It's all gone. And and then mm-hmm. there are a few shows I've been in, like Groundhog Day, that are yeah. so good that they <laughs> are touchstones for people. And, yeah. and they exist beyond what most things exist. Uh, so it, you realize you have no control over mm. how how that turns out and how that works. Mm-hmm. And so you, you realize, well, it's, I'm not in control of that, but I appreciate how mm-hmm. heroic it was, everybody working on Groundhog Day. And for people <laughs> working on Groundhog Day, they were just as hardworking and just as heroic as dozens of other projects I've done that have vanished from the face of the earth. You know, mm-hmm. people tried really hard. They tried to make it work. Audiences loved it. I remember I I was interviewed by CNN. I was over at Universal Studios, and I was doing it, and the CNN entertainment person took me back. He says, so how do you feel being here on this same stage where you've had so much failure? Oh, my God. Wow. Okay. <laughs> That's a hostile question. You know, and, and, and I said... I said to him, I said, what do you mean by failure? Yeah. Do you mean that we didn't get a pickup? Did you mean Mm -hmm. we didn't get a second season? What if we got a second season but didn't get a third? What if we ran five seasons but didn't get an Emmy nomination? Mm -hmm. At what point do you call in failure? There are Mm a million ways this business ends up in failure. But let me tell you, (laughs) when we did these shows and this – audience was filled, this studio shook with laughter when we performed. (laughs) And the audience was thrilled and they went home happy. And Mm -hmm. and so that is not a failure. So it just depends if you're drawing your line for failure or drawing your line for success. So I think George Mm -hmm. Bailey, you know, I'm thinking him, he has no, no, no idea at the end of the movie, he's just happy that yeah. he's found Zuzu's petals again in his coat pocket. What the Sam Hill are you yelling for, George? George? Bert, do you know me? Know you? Huh, you kidding? I've been looking all over town trying to find you. I saw your car piled into that tree down there, and I thought maybe you... Hey, your mouth's bleeding. Are you sure you're all right? What you... <laughs> My mouth's bleeding, Bert! My mouth's bleeding! Zuzu's pedals. Zuzu. There they are! Bert! What do you know about that? Merry Christmas! Well, Merry Christmas. Merry! Merry! <laughs> he doesn't realize that his, his wife has gone out and collected all this money yeah. to save the business. Uh-huh. To George Bailey, the richest man in town. But he couldn't have done it alone. Couldn't have done mm-hmm. it without Donna Reed. Couldn't have done it without her. And we, in that movie, we have the miracle of seeing mm-hmm. what the world would have looked like without George Bailey. 
Now, Mm -hmm. I don't think the world is going to look that much with or without me. But well, Stephen, let's be real here. Like I said, grown up with you, known some of us known you our entire lives. I'm not willing to agree with you in that statement. But George Bailey ran the the savings and loan for the poor people. You know, yeah. he he got poor people homes. He really mm-hmm. did something. So mm-hmm. uh, I had this one moment. I just remembered. I was first job I ever did out here was children's theater, oh, a twelfth okay. night repertory company, and so. Uh-huh. I mean, we had great people in this company. It was a company of about five or six actors, all of which Mm -hmm. could sing, could play an instrument, could do mime. And we did shows in the schools. And we usually performed for elementary schools. We were called up to do a high school. So we're doing like stories about Sacagawea for a high school. I'm thinking like, well, I'm not sure if that's going to work. They had been having race riots. And two kids had been killed in these race riots. We went into this school under police escort. Wow. To perform. And we're in a high school auditorium. So there's like 2,000 seats. And it's filled with students now who have to be here to watch this mm-hmm. stupid show about Sakajawea <laughs> yeah. and uh-huh. Manjura Hukama and Elizabeth Blackwell and Jean Baptiste Pointe de Sable, the black man who founded Chicago. Mm-hmm. And we do all these mime stories and they're all kind of silly and funny. And then we're playing the yeah. piano and playing the guitar. We came in and these students were screaming at us. They're throwing stuff at us. We were dodging it on stage. Whoa. They were yelling, but we kept performing. We mm-hmm. kept performing. And at the end, we do the story of John Baptiste Point to Sabla and Rick Fitz uh, was the black guy in our company, and he had a beautiful uh-huh. damn voice. And he sings the last song, and I'm playing the piano. For, he sings the last song, and the audience is silent. <laughs> and then they start oh, wow. screaming. They start screaming, and they give us a standing ovation. These were people <laughs> that were throwing cans of Coke at us at the beginning of the show, full cans of Coke, not empty. Yeah. So if it hit yeah. you, you would go into a coma. Yet, you know, like you're dodging the cans of Coke and we're yeah. doing stories about Lewis and Clark. We finish and they're giving us a standing ovation. So we bow, we leave the stage and they're still cheering. We come out and we, we bow again and we bow again and they're still clapping. So we thank the oh audience. We thank them. We do not leave under a police escort. We go back to Los Angeles and we hear from the principal that our show performed a miracle and Uh, that the race riots stopped after our show. What? And the entire, it it was the power of art and the power of theater and the power of acting to change one life. And in this case, it had a contagion in that it changed Mm -hmm. the people at the school. And it was miraculous. So, yeah, in a way, that was my George Bailey moment that I didn't expect, is that Mm -hmm. we were the heroes in those people's lives. We actually did something to change something. I just, I, I, I want to keep asking you a million more things, because this is one of my best best conversations I've ever had. But I get, like, I guess, like, to wrap up, like, 
seeing like being a part of so many things and being up close to things that have stood such the test of time. How do you, as somebody who wanted, who started reading King Lear as a, as a isolated (laughs) child in study hall, how do you with perspective behind you qualify your, your own, define your own success at this point in your career? Like what does success mean to you? Uh, uh, I've been seen. Mm. Your podcast. I've been seen. I I feel like I've been seen and I've been heard as a person on this little planet. Yeah. And and I think, you know, jumping, you know, not that we're talking about love virtually, but about love virtually, it's about people being seen for real. And if Uh the computer is an instrument for seeing you or not seeing you. Mm-hmm. I think for me as a person, I've been the monster in my life, like Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. I've been misunderstood like him. And I think I have been seen and heard because of the generosity uh, and a lot of good writing in Hollywood and yes. plays I've done in New York. In New York, on Broadway, if you're in a hit, you see every, you see all of your heroes. Yeah. And 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 you're able to feel atonement for any hurt you've experienced in your life. <laughs> well, Stephen, this is I cannot thank you enough for your generosity in this conversation and your vulnerability and your candor and your humor and your grace and your perspective. This is one of the best conversations I've ever had, period. And I think sets an absolutely new standard for the Feelings Made podcast (laughs) in what we can do here when people really dive into the conversation. So I thank you so much for being here today. And I'm I'm so honored to have gotten to talk to you about all of this. Well, well, thank you. This this was a real pleasure for me. Truly, Stephen, thank you so much for today and for being a through line in so many of our lives and being a touch point and a face and a voice and a laugh that we know and that like, you know, it's kind of like standing under the same moon with somebody is knowing <laughs> knowing a Stephen Tobolowsky role and being able to talk about it and share and rejoice in that. So thank you for the gift of all of the time that you have given all of us. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, Stephen Tobolowsky does not begin to cover my gratitude uh, for how much he shared and how he shared with us in this episode. We really uh, found ourselves backing into a standard setting uh, conversation with Stephen, I would say. And what a joy, what a treasure. I, When we had the chance to talk to him, me and producer Marissa both, we're like, uh, is, do we dare dream that we could get to talk to Stephen Tobolowsky? And we did, and the dream exceeded what we could have imagined. So thank you again um, to him for that conversation. His new comedy, Love Virtually, is available to stream on lots of platforms, including Hoopla. And now, God, on a less <laughs> exuberant note, one quick thing before I go, we've got to mention what's gone down with Scream, you guys. Um, 
very, very recently uh, around the holiday, the holiday zone, the Thanksgiving period of time, uh, Melissa Barrera was fired. The the Sam Carpenter, the co-lead of new rebooted Scream uh, was booted, was booted uh, from from the movies like Scream 7's got Chris Landon attached to direct. It had they made a meal out of the core four at number six. Mason Gooding, Jasmine Savoy Brown, Jenna Ortega, um, Melissa Barrera, the new Woodsboro core four who are going to carry this uh, carry Scream uh, further into its latest next gen iteration. She was uh, removed from the film following comments that she had made about the ongoing horrifying conflict in Gaza. And I'm not going to get into the statement that Spyglass made. That's a that's oof, that's a conversation. You either unpack the entire damn thing or you you give it the respect it deserves. We're going to stick to the franchise on this. Um uh, because it's just so hugely important and consequential. But she was like, oh, which was which was blockbuster enough uh, to the point where it was like, okay, we're seeing reporting about this happening, but until this is like trade publication official, like Variety or THR official, like I'm not believing it. And then The Hollywood Reporter came out and was like, confirmed Melissa Barrera not returning for Scream 7. Oh my God. And then it was like, what's going to ha- A, what's going to happen to this movie? What's going to the rest of the cast? And then, sure enough, I believe it was the next day, news breaks, Jenna Ortega not returning for Scream 7. The Carpenter Sisters, the, like, name homage, headlining characters, headlining actors, they, Scream 5, snuck in there right on the threshold of Jenna Ortega exploding into gargantuan success as one of the most in-demand young actors in the industry. Got her right before that blow-up officially happened and really got itself a coup in that regard. The first, like, Latina, like, co-leads of a studio slasher friend, I mean, just couldn't have been, like, bigger from top to bottom in terms of, like, horror world uh, narratives, and now they're gone. Uh, officially, the the reasoning from Jenna's camp is that she they was never confirmed in her contract to return for seven, and that her team had alerted the studio that it was likely Jenna wouldn't be returning because she didn't have room in her schedule to do seven. Um, and now it was just being officially announced that that was true. I guess completely coincidentally that it was coming. Um, I think within 24 hours of the news that her co-star Melissa Barrera would also be gone. So that is insane. That is insane. Uh, the last update I saw on what could happen next is like Variety did a piece of like what happens now. And like the, there was a little line in there about how like top of the wish list is Nev Campbell to bring her back for seven. And famously, Nev did not return for six because... She did not believe she was being paid a just amount and the studio would not meet her quote. And she said, like, I'm not going to go somewhere I'm not valued. And she did not appear in six. Sort of, you know, with the way Gail's character seemed to perhaps be resolved. It felt like a very sort of final official passing of the torch to the next generation. But now... I bet Nev's phone's been ringing about how can we get you back? How can we make you happy? So this is insane. This is insane. I'm 
infuriated uh, at the way Melissa Barrera and Jenna Ortega have been, um, how they lost him, how they fumbled the bag on this. But would I watch the Nev Campbell petty paycheck return to the franchise where I know that she only came back because the studio backed a brink struck up to make up for letting her go in six? Yeah, I'd watch that Nev Campbell scream. I'd watch that Nev Campbell scream for sure. Uh, But time will tell. Time will tell, guys. And I will be watching this one closely. Uh, You know, we obviously won't update on every little thing, but down the line, if there are significant enough accumulated details, you will be hearing one more quick thing about the Scream franchise and its comings and goings on this pod. But that's it. Like, look at that. Like, epic episode of Stephen Tobolowsky followed by epic news break about Scream. What a day. What a day for feeling seen. For, for me, for you, for all of us. Um, but that is our show. And you can follow us on Twitter at FeelingScenePod or send us an email at FeelingSceneAt at MaximumFun.org. If you want to follow me, I'm Crew on Twitter. Our theme music is by Andrew Epen. The show is produced by Marissa Flaxbart. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher. And this is a production of Maximum Fun. Maximum Fun. A worker-owned network of artist-owned shows. Supported directly by you.